The Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging presents The Art of Aging, information and tips on how to experience life more abundantly as we age. Our hosts are John King and Reverend Beth Long Higgins, Executive Director of the Ruth Frost Parker Center in Marion, Ohio, an initiative of the United Church Homes. Hi, Beth. You know, our listeners may have noticed that we missed an episode in January. Unfortunately, the reason was our producer, Eric Johnson, was in a serious bicycle accident, breaking his neck and seven ribs. Fortunately, it looks like he'll make a full recovery. Today's episode is a look at long-term care. Eric interviewed Catherine Brodt, the president and CEO of Leading Age Ohio. This is a not-for-profit trade association which represents about 400 long-term care organizations who provide hospice, housing, nursing, or ancillary services for older adults throughout the state. Ironically, when Eric conducted this interview, he obviously had no idea he would be facing a potentially life-threatening accident that would take him to a center for rehab services himself. His experience underlines regardless of how well we feel, our lives can change in an instant. Especially as we age, we need to anticipate that we never know what will happen tomorrow. In that vein, we will be offering a special feature, a book review. Atul Gawande's Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters in the End. Gawande is a surgeon and a New York Times bestselling author who confronts the challenges we face at the end of our lives. Catherine, during your career, how has nursing home care evolved? When I started in this space, we actually restrained people. And some would argue that it's better to keep someone from falling than it is to allow them to fall. I think where most of the sector has gone and where individuals need to make decisions about how they're going to age is to understand the situations in which they're going to be moving. So are you going to be encouraged to live your life with the decisions that you make, even if they might impair your safety? If you want to be in that house with the steps, maybe we can figure out ways for you not to be carrying your laundry up and down those steps, right? <laughs> Let, let's try to be smart about your decisions. What trends are you most excited about at this point? One of the areas that I've been most excited to see change is the movement from that we're going to protect you and keep you safe, paternalistic view of serving aging to Atul Gawande's advice that we need to understand what is going to bring quality to every individual's day. And if it's your last day of life and what you want is an ice cream cone, we need to deliver the quality of life that you want every day that you're alive. And we moved to speaking about person-centered care a number of years ago. And more recently, we've really begun to talk about person-directed care. And I think that person-directed care embodies where our sector is moving and an embodies it in a way I'm pretty excited about because that person-directed care says, this is what quality of life means for me, and this is how I want to engage with my community and how I want to stay involved. Can you define person-centered care? Person-centered means, well, 
our dining hours used to be from eight to five, but we know some people would like to eat a little bit later. So we're going to open our dining hours up so that they extend later in the afternoon and earlier in the morning. Well, that that's person-centered. We've changed our policy in order to um, allow individuals to have more flexibility in what they do. But person-directed really changes the conversation in a way that I think is where, as a sector, we need to be moving. And given everything we're facing right now with vaccine mandates and staff shortages, managing with the flexibility and education of your staff to really deliver the kind of person-directed care I just described, well, that just feels almost impossible right now. You were saying that staffing is a huge problem right now. Can you explain how you've recently been dealing with that? So we have within the Association of Leading Age Ohio, members that range from adult day to affordable housing to hospice and nursing and assisted living, senior centers. And what we saw in a recent survey that we did actually with Scripps, Miami of Ohio, the gerontology center, was that the typical nursing home has far more openings than they've ever had before. And in fact, they don't even have applicants for those jobs. Or they'll have applicants, they'll go through the interviews, and the individuals don't show up for the work. The organizations are needing to completely rethink how they hire workers, their wages. They've been raising their wages repeatedly. And you can't raise the wage of a frontline worker without raising the wages of everyone. Think about your local McDonald's. That person who just walks in the door, if you raise their wage to twice what it was a year ago, you can't pay the manager less than that frontline employee. You've got to raise the wages of everyone commensurate with what you've just done with that individual walking in the door. And the impact of that kind of a iteration over and over and over again in our facilities. And for many, their occupancy has gone down, especially during COVID. Hospitals stopped doing surgeries, and so people didn't need rehab. So their census has gone down within the facility. But also, we have home care within our organizations, and our home care folks have many, many more people that they're trying to serve. But they can't find staff either. It's just different now. You can be an Uber driver and pick up a couple hundred bucks in cash without having to commit to working a nine to five job. And there's a lack of understanding or maybe interest. I don't know what is encouraging somebody to not care about the benefits <laughs> or what might come with a, a job that isn't quite so flexible. We're calling it an Uber mentality. You can work with all the flexibility you want or not work. And unfortunately, in the line of work that our members provide, we need, we need dependability. So that consistency in staffing is really important in quality. So that's our challenge in our sector is to figure out how we can marry a new desire from a workforce with what we know is a need for consistent staffing and a person-directed care, all of that requires a knowledge 
of someone, right? And um, so we've got our work cut out for us. So how are institutions coping with the increased pay and short staff? Where are they getting the money? Are they changing what they're charging people? They are having to limit the number of individuals that they serve because they don't have sufficient staff. Hospitals need us to take discharges from the hospitals because why? They don't have staff (laughs) because the hospital staffs according to acuity, right? So um, when somebody is ready to be discharged, they need for them to move to a lower level of care or a more appropriate level of care. But let's say that person needs to go home and needs home care in order to live safely at home. Well, if, if we can't staff the home care agency, then the hospital can't discharge them because they don't have a, a care plan for them to be cared for at home. Well, the, all right, we'll send them to a rehab facility. Well, wait a minute, the rehab facility isn't taking new admissions because they don't have the staff in order to care for them. So we have organizations that have just stopped taking admissions uh, because they don't have the staff. So we need to be creative, right? We need to be innovative with how we're working with our workforce challenges. Have you been able to lobby for changes? This past year, we were advocating for reimbursement uh, levels to be commensurate with the kind of care that are being provided by the organizations that I just described. So adult day, having an increase in the adult day rate, so important individuals who are using adult day are caregivers who need respite (laughs) or they're individuals who need to work. And COVID shut down adult day early and opened adult day late. And the adult day reimbursement was an area that we lobbied hard for. We were advocating for increases in a number of other levels of care, nursing homes, home care, home health, One trend that we've been seeing is a range of care, such as the life plan community that offers everything from independent living to assisted living to nursing home care. What is the rationale for this trend? A life plan community is a community that offers different levels of care, generally on a single campus or in a single building. But in general, when an individual enters or signs a contract with a life plan community, they're arranging care for the rest of their life. So it's kind of like an insurance policy. It is. It is. Are there other trends on the horizon that you're seeing? We certainly see trends in technology that we hope are going to provide solutions to a limited workforce. I mean, just the demographics in our country as well as other countries have shown us that we need to be far more innovative in terms of how we are caring for individuals. It may be that regulatory changes need to accompany that because sometimes regulations tell us that we have to have more people than we believe are necessary, particularly if we've got technology that could assist. And so one of the more clever technologies that I've heard about that's being piloted in some of our members is a robot that can bus a table. And by bus a table, I mean it could deliver food or more likely remove dishes. And that frees up a dietary server, that individual who's actually coming to the table to say, hello, Mr. Jones, Mrs. Smith, 
to be more engaged in a, a personal way and not have to be removing dishes. The robots are programmed. They know the square footage of that dining room. They've got the ability to see where chairs are, and, and they don't run into one another because they can avoid one another. Just ways in which we can eliminate workforce that isn't really customer service oriented, but doing work that could be automated. And in fact, what we know of some of this technology is that the um, individuals that are served by it think it's pretty fun and engage with it in a way that this could have legs, pardon the pun, to serve us in the future. What should people be paying attention to as we age, both in our own lives and in their communities? We need to actively plan for our own aging, and we need to ensure that our communities are actively planning for an aging constituency. So having age-friendly communities, and age-friendly isn't just those over some specified age. Age-friendly applies to mothers with children, making sure that we have communities that facilitate people with mobility needs. That's the community response. But our own individual advocacy is to make sure that we plan for our aging. Have they done the hard thinking of, am I going to be able to stay in this home 10 years from now? Here's my example. My husband and I live in a home that was built in 1860-something. Very steep steps. 16 steep steps up to our bedroom. And we have talked about the fact that we can't age terribly long in this home. And should we be making a decision now while we're both able, capable, and working together to make a decision about our next move? And that's a hard decision to be at together. Maybe even harder to do it alone when that home is where you've been and it's so comfortable. You've spent years making it exactly how you want it and disrupting that apple cart until you absolutely need to isn't something most people are willing to consider. But I'd argue that the best advocacy we can do both for our community and for ourselves is to move into a place where we can age well as long as possible. As an organization, I noticed you had a family resource tab on your website. Can you tell me some of the resources you offer? We do have a family resource, particularly around the advanced directives area, making sure that individuals have the resources they need and families have the resources they need to have those conversations, which as a part of that aging well, I think should be had by everyone. Frankly, even young parents need to have conversations about what should happen if. And so those resources are there as well as um, folks that are looking for long-term care providers around the state, um, they can search in their zip code area and find uh, providers that might be near them. Are there ways you are looking to the future in terms of staffing? One of the areas that my team here is working in is building a pipeline of high school students and college students to engage in aging services. And I believe that those relationships that they're going to form as they serve are going to infect them 
the way it did me and encourage them to stay in our field. So I'm hopeful that all of us who can speak to our youth who are, you know, trying to figure out what they want to do and be in their careers can at least be introduced to aging services because we need accountants, we need HR execs, we need clinical staff, we need maintenance techs, we need uh, a whole range of services to be provided. And a, a wonderful example of the importance of being educated about serving in this space is hearing about a technology company that was installing home monitoring devices and the individuals that they employed to make those installations hadn't received any training about engaging with a population that might not be as proficient with the technology as a younger population. They, they had been given no training in terms of how to engage with the generation that they were serving. So I believe that if we could train our high schoolers, our college students, they will be better equipped to serve no matter where they go. But my hope is that ultimately they might serve directly in our aging services sector. What do you think appeals to someone who is young about working with older people? Relationships, relationships, relationships. And that's not for everyone, but for those for whom there's a tremendous sense of self-worth that comes from serving and building relationships, I think they'll not want to have an alternative that doesn't include that. A good example is there are individuals, nurses who serve in aging services, who prefer to be in one of our life plan communities or nursing homes versus in a hospital, because in a hospital, you're always serving a different clientele. You know, you don't have people who live with you for two, three, 10 years. And so um, they, they would much prefer to serve in a field where they build relationships with those they serve. You mentioned author Atul Gawande earlier. I believe his bestseller, Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters in the End, is the best book I've read about aging. I encourage everyone to reflect on the issues he raises in this book. Being Mortal is a meditation on how the many triumphs of modern medicine have impacted end-of-life decisions. We have many choices to make as we face death from our medical system, built around fixing whatever ails us. Should we try another chemotherapy? Do you want heroic measures taken to extend your life? Should another surgery be tried if the recovery and pain may lead to suffering during our remaining days? Author and surgeon Atul Gawande, master storyteller, has faced many of these decisions in his own practice and has not always been comfortable with what he recommended to his patients. One illustration is the 34-year-old woman who in the last month of her pregnancy learns that she has stage 4 lung cancer. She is determined to do whatever she can to extend the time she has with her new baby. However, the cancer and related treatments debilitated her to the point where she was often unable to even hold her infant daughter. This may be a turning point for difficult conversations about how hospice care may allow her a few months of relative comfort. These conversations require practice that starts with listening to the goals of the patient. Perhaps they want to be able to attend an upcoming wedding. 
It could be as simple as wanting to have time to say goodbye to friends and family, or to live out their last days at home. Often, the answers to these questions will define the choices we make. Ironically, making a patient more comfortable sometimes extends life. Even if you are not facing a terminal illness, being mortal can be a lesson in how our bodies age and what our options are as we grow older. What became of older people a century ago? Gawande cites a study in Greenwich Village in 1913. Some older residents were lucky enough to own their own homes, allowing them to rent out a room for sustenance. Others still had the ability to earn small sums in other ways. But barring that, the only option was going to a poorhouse, where conditions were horrific. In the 30s, Social Security provided some basic safety net. But after World War II, everything began to change. Sulfa drugs, antibiotics, heart medication, and the growth of heart surgery, kidney transplants, and other advancements in health care extended our life expectancy from 62 in 1939 to 78 in 2019. Doctors became heroes. But new challenges to caring for people as they aged emerged. In 1946, Congress passed the Hill-Burton Act that helped fund hundreds of new medical facilities. For the first time, almost everyone had access to a hospital. Older patients, often having no other option, ended up filling hospital beds. So, in 1954, Congress passed legislation to establish nursing homes. Often, the decision to move to a nursing home was based on maximizing safety. Quality of life was sacrificed for the convenience of the staff. Patients lost control of almost all aspects of their lives. They no longer had a private space, a choice of when to wake up, when to eat, or when to go to bed. Gawande chronicles the last 30 years by sharing the stories of some visionaries who have found ways to improve the quality of nursing home care. Karen Brown Wilson proposed an alternative to long-term nursing care, which came to be known as assisted living. She thought residents should have a lock on their door, small private kitchens, control of her heat, no roommate or required schedule. She thought it should feel more like a home. After securing an investor and obtaining all the necessary state approvals, they opened the first assisted living facility in Portland in 1983. By the time she opened a second location in 1988, research revealed that the residents suffered less depression, had improved cognitive function, and comparative physical health. Low-income residents even saved the state 20% over standard nursing home care. By 2010, there were almost as many assisted living residents as nursing home residents. But with this growth, the meaning of the term became less defined. Many organizations used assisted living for its marketing value. Today, many organizations offer a staged model, allowing individuals to move from independent living, assisted care, or nursing care, as different supports are needed. Bill Thomas was an ER physician and part-time farmer who took a job as the medical director at a nursing home near Rochester, New York. He was immediately struck by what he perceived as a lack of life within the facility. People said he would get used to it, but he just could not. He developed a vision of bringing life into the nursing home. He gradually introduced some cats, dogs, real house plants, a garden, and a bird for each resident. With each idea, they had to confront many state regulatory hurdles. Thomas saw the three plagues of nursing home life as boredom, loneliness, and helplessness. 
In his mind, these innovations would go a long way to changing that culture. Eventually, Chase added a daycare for staff members, giving the residents an opportunity to live in an intergenerational community. The results were convincing and demonstrated a decreased use of pharmaceuticals and even decreasing mortality rates compared to the more medical nursing home model. Gawande believes that Thomas's experiment illustrates a fundamental truth. Over the last 50 years, we have allowed the medical field to govern how we age and die. The experiment has failed. But through visionaries like Karen Brown Wilson, Bill Thomas, and the growing acceptance of hospice and palliative care, things have begun to change. In 1945, most deaths occurred at home. With the adoption of the philosophy of palliative care, today, the majority of patients die in hospice care. Our society is in transition. As we learn to grapple with end-of-life decisions and find alternatives to the medical model for those fortunate to live a longer life. Gawande provides us with personal stories where many of these decisions went well and others went tragically wrong, leading to untold suffering with little or no benefit. As each of us face our own potential longevity and inevitable mortality, we will likely face them with a greater understanding of how to navigate these difficult choices after taking this journey with Atul Gawande. This podcast was funded in part by the Dayton Foundation Del Mar Encore Fellows Initiative and the Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging, a program of United Church Homes. Audio production and interviews were conducted by Del Mar Fellow Eric Johnson.